We read the word of God this morning in Colossians chapter 3. We read this chapter in connection with Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism and the doctrine of true conversion. Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, For ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect 
of persons. We read the word of God that far. We consider this morning the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33. That can be found in the back of the Psalter on page 19. Lord's Day 33. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts. Of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Last time in Lord's Day 32, we learned that we who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ must do good works. We must do good works so that we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings. We also learned in Lord's Day 32 that people who continue in a wicked and ungrateful life and are not converted to God cannot be saved. We saw that the reason they cannot be saved is not that we are saved because of our good works or we are saved through our good works. That's not the reason. But the reason is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and the faith by which God saves us, God is pleased to make a living faith. God is pleased to make that faith produce the fruits of good works. And therefore, if a person is continuing in a wicked and ungrateful life, he reveals that he is not converted to God. He reveals that he has not been saved. He reveals that he is not producing the fruits of a true and living faith. And he cannot be saved, not because God cannot save him, but because God will not save a man in that way. God is pleased to save us by grace, through faith, unto good works, so that being saved by grace, through faith, we walk in good works. Therefore, a person who continues in a wicked and ungrateful life cannot be saved unless he is converted. Now, this morning, we are going to pursue and look into that matter of being converted 
this matter of what the Catechism calls in our Lord's Day, true conversion. And I begin by asking you the question, personally, have you been converted to God? In Matthew 18, verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you this morning, have you been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you have not been, then you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But if you have been converted, you will enter into the kingdom for all eternity. But I follow that up with a second question, and it's this question, are you being converted daily? Are you being converted day by day? Do you see in your life a constant work of God converting you? I call you to notice that the Heidelberg Catechism does not treat this matter of conversion in the second part. Remember, there are three parts in the Catechism. The first part is about our sinfulness. The second part, our deliverance. The third part, our thankfulness. The Catechism does not treat conversion in the second part. The Catechism is not treating conversion in the sense of God's first and initial work of conversion in our lives, in which he turns us from unbelief to faith, whereby, through that faith, we receive the experience of free justification for the first time. That would be in the second part of the Catechism, deliverance. The Catechism treats it in the third part. Not that initial conversion from unbelief to faith, but the ongoing and daily conversion of the believer, the one who is already a believer. That's the subject this morning. Are you being converted? Am I being converted day by day? That's the work of God that we call sanctification. It's the work of God in which he daily, continuously is turning us from sinful ways to grateful obedience. The Apostle Paul speaks of conversion in this sense throughout his many epistles, Romans 12 and 13, Galatians 5 and 6, Ephesians 4, 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. He speaks of this daily ongoing conversion under many different terms. He, He speaks of it as being transformed by the renewing of your mind. He speaks of it as walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. He speaks of it as putting off the old man and putting on the new man, mortifying the old and quickening the new. And in all of these different terms, the Apostle teaches us about the daily conversion of the believer. And that will be the theme of the sermon this morning. The daily conversion of the believer. Let's notice first the idea of conversion. Secondly, the parts of conversion. And thirdly, the fruit of conversion. Let's start with the question, what is conversion? Well, you can see even in the word conversion, it has to do with a change or a turning. Conversion is the work of God 
turning sinners from darkness to light. We have all been born into this world in the darkness. We've been born in the darkness with a love for that darkness and a comfort in that darkness and a delight and a happiness to sit right there in the darkness and not to go anywhere. Conversion is the work of God turning us around from that darkness and turning us into the light, opening our eyes to the light, to see the light, to know the light, to love the light, and to walk in the light. That's conversion. Now, conversion is a work of God in our lives that comes after his work of regeneration. Regeneration is the first work that God does in our life, and he does that work without our consciousness. He does that work before we ever hear the preaching of the gospel. He does that work without our involvement or activity. He comes into us through the Spirit, powerfully, immediately, irresistibly. He turns us. He changes us. Regeneration is the mortification of our old man of sin and the quickening of our new man in principle. It's the beginning of God's work. And then comes conversion. Conversion is a work that God performs in our lives through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later today, you might read in the canons of Dort, the third and fourth heads of doctrine, articles 9, 10, 11, and 12. 9, 10, 11, and 12. And there you will read about the Reformed teaching of conversion in the sense of God's initial work of conversion in the life of a sinner. The canons there teaches that God performs his work of true conversion, that initial work, through the preaching of the gospel. Having regenerated us, he sends to us the preaching of the gospel. He sends to us preachers who stand before us and proclaim to us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, slain for sinners, risen from the dead, ascended into glory, reigning over all. There is forgiveness and salvation in Christ and in no one else and nowhere else. He sends preachers to call us then to be converted. Preachers come to us and say, be converted. Turn from your unbelief. Turn by, in faith to Jesus Christ. Believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. Some who hear that preaching and that call of the gospel by their own stubborn fault and rebellion refuse to hear it. They refuse to come. They refuse to be converted. And the canons teaches us that refusal to be converted is not the fault of the gospel, but it is their own fault. And they will be punished for that. And that stubborn refusal to be converted is also according to God's eternal decree of predestination. In Isaiah chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 13 and Acts 28, we find that God has in him a will not to convert certain people. God sent Isaiah, God sent his son Jesus Christ, God sent the Apostle Paul to preach. And we are told there 
that one of God's purposes is that they will see, but they won't see, and hearing they won't hear, lest they should be converted. Lest they should be converted. God doesn't intend to convert all. But when the preaching of the gospel goes, and the call to be converted and to believe and come to Jesus Christ, some people believe they are converted. And they come to Christ, and they believe in him, they repent of their sins and they love him. But they do not receive the credit for their conversion. They do not receive the glory and the praise for coming to Jesus Christ. All the glory goes to God's work through the Spirit, irresistibly drawing them and converting them and bringing them to Christ. So that's how God works conversion through the preaching of the gospel. And so we see there too, what is the goal of missions? God sends preachers out into the world, into the nations, to preach that gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere and to everyone. And when missionaries who are sent out, they go out into the nations, into that darkness... And there they stand in the darkness and they preach that gospel of Christ in the darkness. The goal of that preaching is that sinners will be converted. That the heathen will be converted to Jesus Christ. And on the mission field, missionaries and others who visit the mission field are able to hear the stories of the conversion of their brothers and sisters in Christ, of other nations, of other languages and other cultures. They love to tell their stories, too. Often those stories are very dramatic. They can tell you the exact day when they heard that preaching of the gospel and came to Christ by the grace of God. They can tell you when they put aside and left behind their Hinduism, their Buddhism, their Islam, their atheism, and became a Christian for the first time. But that conversion of the heathen on the mission field is only the beginning of a life of conversion. And that's clear from the epistles of Paul, which he wrote. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians. In all those epistles, which he wrote to converts, heathen who had become Christians, he urges them to live a life of conversion, daily conversion, ongoing turning from sin and turning to God. But the goal of preaching is conversion also in an established church like our own. The goal of preaching is your conversion. In the established church, in the sphere of the covenant, where you find believers and their children in their generations, we ought not necessarily to expect such dramatic stories of such sudden conversions as we find on the mission field. Just to use my own life as an example, I cannot pinpoint the day on which I was converted initially. And I imagine that's true of many of you as well. As we sometimes say, I was converted on my mother's lap. And what we mean by that is, When I was sitting on my mother's lap in church when I was a little boy, for me it was in Southeast Protestant Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
sitting on my mother's lap or sitting next to her in church, looking up at the preacher as a little boy, listening to the preaching of the gospel. That's when I was converted. But I don't know the exact day or the exact hour, but I know I was converted when I was very little. No doubt like many of you. And therefore, I cannot tell you this morning, I cannot give a testimony this morning of my personal conversion story. As the Apostle Paul could do and did do many times, Paul often told the story of his dramatic conversion when he was on the road to Damascus to persecute and imprison Christians. Suddenly this bright light filled the sky. And he heard Jesus Christ speak to him personally and directly. And right then and right there, he was converted from his darkness to faith in Jesus Christ. And often when we hear those stories, it's a great encouragement to us. But we ought not to feel that we are lesser Christians if we do not have such a dramatic story to tell. Rather, we should be thankful for the blessing that we received to be converted on our mother's laps, sitting in church as little children. But as I said in the introduction, the Heidelberg Catechism here does not focus on that work of God converting us initially, that initial work of conversion, but it focuses on God's work of daily conversion. Whether you were initially converted as a little child or as an adult, that marks the beginning of a life of conversion. That life of conversion doesn't end until we go to heaven. The apostle indicates that in the chapter we read, Colossians 3, when he begins, having set down the truths of the gospel in the first two chapters, then he goes on and says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What he's saying to them is, if you have been converted, if you are Christians, if you are believers then continue that life of conversion. Seek the things which are above, not things on the earth. Live as a Christian. When God initially converts us through the preaching of the gospel, he gives us faith. And by that faith, we experience for the first time, perhaps when we were very little, that free justification, that free forgiveness of all our sins. But then God begins his work of sanctification. When God converts us, he does not take us directly up to heaven, but he sets us on a journey. That conversion is the beginning of our journey, the beginning of our battle, the beginning of our lifelong struggle against sin and doubt and unbelief. Our battle on our journey to heaven When God converts us, he does not make us perfectly holy, but he gives us a small beginning of the new obedience. A small beginning. And he begins to work daily conversion from sinful ways to grateful obedience. All of us who are converted Christians are on that journey right now. We're fighting that fight right now. Every day. Every morning. The battle begins again. Every morning, the journey continues. 
It's a life of daily conversion. Now, on that journey of daily conversion, sometimes there are Christians who backslide. They go astray from the straight and narrow path. We think of that parable of the prodigal son. The son who requested from his father all of the money of his inheritance that he would receive in the future when his father dies. He wanted it before his father died. And he took all that money and he went away from his father's home. And he went out into the world. And he spent all of his inheritance on riotous living, drunkenness, partying, harlots, and all kinds of the pleasures and treasures of the world. Sometimes Christians backslide like that. Go astray like that. They, re- they leave the church. They leave the faith. They go into the world. They live a life of debauchery. And then, if they are one of God's children, he will convert them. That's a kind of conversion. They never lost that seed of regeneration, but they backslid from the, the journey of the Christian life. And now God converts them and brings them back And he does that in a very painful way. It's painful. When a Christian backslides, the conversion is painful. And for the prodigal son, it was painful. Where did he find himself after he spent all of his inheritance? He found himself feeding pigs, swine, walking through the mud, working for another man, trying to eke out a living. And as he saw himself, having spent all of his inheritance wallowing in the mud with the pigs. He realized how wicked he had been. God humbled him. In tears and sorrow, he came back to his father, knowing he didn't deserve to be his son, begging only to be considered a servant. The father received him with open arms in forgiveness. That's a kind of conversion. Perhaps you have experienced that in your life, something like that. Perhaps we cannot pinpoint the day when we were initially converted, but perhaps we can tell stories of times in our youth or maybe even in our adult life when we backslid, when we went astray into wicked, sinful ways, but God humbled us and restored us. Sometimes whole churches backslide together. That's called apostasy or leaving the first love of Jesus Christ. And then God might send preachers to say to them, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep my anger forever. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married to you. Jeremiah three twelve through 14. That's a kind of conversion too. We often call it Reformation. It's a kind of conversion when God restores a backsliding church to the truth of the gospel and to the right and good way. But not all Christians experience such backsliding as that. Nevertheless, all Christians are on that journey of daily conversion. And on that journey, every single day, we face daily temptations. Every day, we commit daily sins. We fall into daily sinful habits, sinful patterns of thinking, sinful patterns of thought, sinful fantasizing, sinful ways of talking, sinful ways of behaving, 
And God calls to us through his word, Turn, my children, turn from your evil ways and walk in my ways. There are two parts to true conversion. As we said, that true conversion is also called sanctification. There are two parts to sanctification, to conversion, to the Christian life. And the first, the Catechism says, is the mortification of the old man. And the second is the quickening of the new man. That comes from the passage that we read. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 5, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. There's mortification. Mortification means killing. That's what it means, killing. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Kill them. Your members which are upon the earth are, that's our old man of sin that is still in us, our sinful flesh. He says to kill it. Now that's a very violent terminology, isn't it? The Bible often uses violent terminology to refer to this life of conversion because it is kind of a violent thing. Think of what Jesus says. He says, if your right eye offends you because with it, you look at women to lust after them in your heart, then he says, pluck out your right eye and cast it away from you because it is better to enter into heaven with one eye than to enter into hell with two. Or if your right hand is the one that is offending you, with your right hand, you commit constant habitual sins. He says, cut it off then. It's better to go into heaven with one hand than into hell with two. That's violent language. The apostle carries that on in the passage when he says, kill your members which are upon the earth. Kill them. Now that does not mean that we literally kill ourselves. It doesn't mean that we literally pluck out our eyes or literally cut off our hands. But it means it's going to be painful. But do it. Do it. It's not going to be easy, but I call you to do it. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Quickening, the idea of quickening also comes from Paul's epistles. We find that in Ephesians chapter 2. We find that here in Colossians chapter 2 as well. In verse 13, he says, You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Quickening means to be made alive. Now Christ has already made us alive through regeneration, and now he says that we are to walk in that new life. Quickening of the new man. Now what do these two parts mean, more specifically? Catechism defines each of them for us. And I want to show, first of all, that the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new refers to repentance. And that's evident from the Catechism. The Catechism defines the mortification of the old man this way. It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. Stop there. That first. That's repentance. 
And then the quickening of the new man. It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. Stop right there. That's the positive side of repentance. The first work of God in us is regeneration. Then conversion through the preaching of the gospel. Conversion leads us to repentance. When God converts us, we repent. What is repentance? The word repentance in the Bible means a change of your mind. Change of your mind. Your mind is thinking this way. Your mind is thinking this is good and that is good and this is right and that is wrong and this is but it's it's not correct. It's evil. It's an evil way of thinking. Repentance means I change my mind and now I see Actually, that was wrong thinking, and this is the right thinking. That was wrong living, and this is the right living. That in general. But repentance is, first of all, a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. Repentance is not merely a mental, intellectual change of our minds, but repentance is a sincere Genuine, heartfelt sorrow over our sins. Now just look at the list of sins in our passage, verse 5. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Repent of your fornication, your uncleanness, your inordinate affection, your evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify those things. Repent of those things. Repentance means that we have a sincere sorrow of heart over our sexually unclean desires. Our sexually unclean daily fantasies about a man or a woman in our life that is not our husband or our wife. Repentance is a sincere sorrow of heart over our daily sexually unchaste actions or gestures or words. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow over our covetousness. When we catch ourselves coveting our neighbor's house, our neighbor's possessions, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's whole life, when we catch ourselves grumbling and complaining about our lot in life, repentance is a sincere sorrow of heart when we catch ourselves doing that and we realize what we've been doing, grumbling, complaining, and murmuring about our life, and we realize that it's a sincere sorrow of that sin. It's a genuine grief that fills our hearts when we catch ourselves in a pattern of anger, wrath, and malice. Verse 8, now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice. Sometimes we catch ourselves and we, we realize that we are angry person. I am an angry person. I am living in patterns of anger and wrath 
People constantly irritate me and annoy me and get on my nerves, and I blow up in wrath and anger at them. It's a sincere sorrow of heart over that anger and wrath. Or when we reflect on our day and we realize that there was a moment at work when I was frustrated and I blasphemed the name of God. Verse 8, blasphemy, filthy communication. We think back on the day gone by and we realize that here at work or in that place, we cursed, we swore, we cussed, we used filthy language. Because we were frustrated, we were surprised. Or maybe we just wanted to impress somebody by our dirty language. And we reflect on that and we think of, that was a sin. And we're sorry for it. Or verse 9 says, lie not one to another. When we realize that we've been living in a pattern of lies. That we are using lies, all different kinds of lies and manipulation and deceit. To protect ourselves, to protect our secrets, to hide our secrets. Or to promote ourselves, to advance ourselves in the world. Or to hurt our neighbor. And we have a sincere sorrow of heart when we realize we've been lying, slandering, backbiting. That's repentance. But repentance is not just a sorrow over those things. Repentance is not just shedding tears. Certainly not when we are caught in our sins and we begin to shed tears over our sins. And we even confess our sins. Yes, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned. And we weep and we are very emotional about our sins, but repentance, the catechism says, is a sincere sorrow of heart that I have provoked God by my sins. That's repentance. People repent, I put in quotation marks, all the time. Even unbelievers repent in that sense. Even unbelievers express regret and remorse and sorrow over the things that they have done wrong. Why do they do that? All kinds of reasons. But that's not real repentance. Real repentance is like David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And for a year almost, he was silent. And God's hand was heavy upon him. And God sent Nathan the prophet to him and told him that little story of the poor man who had one lamb and the rich man who had all kinds of sheep and the rich man stole the poor man's one little lamb and David was filled with anger. How dare he do that? And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You. You did that. And David then realized in that moment how evil he had been. I have sinned against God. I have given occasion to the ungodly to blaspheme my God. That's what I've done. And we don't just say that to people. 
but we say that in the secret closet in prayer to God. My God, I've sinned against Thee. Against Thee have I sinned and against no one else really. My God who loved me and sent his son for me, I've shown such ingratitude. That's repentance. That's the negative side of repentance. The positive side is a sincere joy in God through Christ. Because in the way of sincere repentance, God gives us and causes to wash over us that blessed experience of forgiveness. He says to us, and my precious child, I forgive you. I blot out all your sins through the precious blood of my son, Jesus Christ. So that suddenly a whole new world opens up to us and the light shines into our darkness and we have the joy of the Lord through Jesus Christ. That's part of conversion, repentance. But there's more. The mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man also means that when we repent of our sins, then we also hate and flee from them. And that's the fruit. And that's often the proof that there is a real repentance. Because we hate and we flee from those sins. That's what the Catechism says. More and more, more and more, we hate and flee from those sins. That's conversion. That's the daily life of conversion. And that doesn't mean that we immediately overcome habitual sins, habitual patterns of sin in our lives. They take time to break free from those. But there's a hatred and a fleeing from those sins. That's the life of conversion. The question of daily conversion that we have to ask ourselves on a daily basis, and that I put before us this morning, is this. What needs to change in my life? That's the question. That's the question of daily conversion. What needs to change in my life? Not in his life, her life, his life, her life, their life. What needs to change in my life? That's the question of daily conversion. And we don't like that question. I don't like it any more than you do. In fact, by nature, we hate that question. Keep that question away from me. I don't want to face that question. What needs to change in my life right now? And none of us can say nothing. None of us can say that. None of us can say, nothing needs to change. I'm good. I'm a Christian. I'm living the Christian life. Nothing needs to change. Well, yes, you're a Christian. And you're living the Christian life. Praise Jehovah. Hallelujah. But the life of daily conversion is a life of constantly asking ourselves that question. What needs to change in my life today? 
go back to those sins listed in our passage. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Can any of us say that we have no lust? Can any of us say that we have no covetousness? That we have no evil concupiscence, no unclean thoughts? Never? I don't think so. What needs to change in my life today? God says to mortify those lusts, to mortify those fantasies, to mortify that covetousness, that jealousy. To mortify it. Kill it. How do I do that? How do I do that? Do I do that just by trying harder? Putting forth more energy, trying to run harder, trying to fight harder against that sin? Is that how I can mortify those lusts, those patterns of sinful thinking and fantasizing and all the rest? No. You can only mortify it by looking up to God and putting your trust in him to do it in you. By working in you to do that. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith and we're sanctified by faith too. We cannot mortify lust, fantasy, covetousness, jealousy, anger, malice, wrath. We cannot. We can't. God can When God says to mortify those things, he's saying, look up to me. Look up. Look up to me. Believe. Do you believe that you can change? Do you believe that I can change you? Put your trust in God. Mortify. Carry that out in very practical ways. Putting our trust in God. We mortify. It's like that old saying, I think it was Oliver Cromwell in England, in one of the great wars of England, who said, trust in God and keep your powder dry, your gunpowder. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. Put your trust in God, and now get busy in your practical life carrying out that calling. What are things that I can do if I have lust What if I'm addicted to pornography? Do I just trust in God that he will immediately change that? Yes, trust in him. Because only he can change it. Trust in him. And now, put filters on your internet. Get an accountability partner to help you with that. Make yourself open and exposed to close and trusted friends who are going to help you bear your burden, and help you to mortify that lust. How am I going to kill anger? If I'm an angry man, how can I really change that? You confess it to close and trusted friends. You open yourself up, you humble yourself, and you ask them to help you. And to keep you accountable, douse it with cold water. You get to the bottom of it. You start doing some soul searching. Maybe you get a little journal and you start to write in it day by day and keep track of the anger that you constantly are bursting forth 
keep track of your anger and ask, why am I so angry all the time? What is the problem with me? Get to the bottom of it. Root it out. That's how. Trust in God and mortify that anger. What about lying? I'm a lying person. Lie not, the apostle says. Lie not one to another. That's not who you are anymore. You have put off the old man with his deeds. You have put on the new man. Stop lying. Tell the truth. Ask yourself, why do I lie? What am I so scared of? Why am I so scared of telling the truth? What am I trying to protect? What am I trying to hide? Why do I think that living in this world of lies and darkness is better than walking in the light? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves. What do I need to change about what I watch on my television? What I look at on my computer? What I listen to for music? What I value in my life? What I hope for in life? What I'm seeking in life? What's important to me in life? What do I need to change today? True conversion is putting off of that old man and putting on of the new man, killing the old, quickening the new. A sincere joy in God through Christ. And that leads us to the fruit of conversion, which is good works. That's the fruit. Good works. God converts us so that we will repent, hate, flee from our sins, and so that we will rejoice in God as our greatest treasure. The one who loved me and gave himself for me gave his son for me to find our joy in him. And then we live a life of thankful obedience. What are good works? The Catechism defines them with three points. First of all, good works are those that proceed from a true faith. They proceed from a true faith. Faith and works are distinct. Faith is not the same as a good work. Faith and works are distinct in the Bible. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. And therefore, clearly, faith and works are distinct. By faith, we are justified. By faith in Jesus Christ alone, who died for us, we are justified. But that faith is never alone. We're justified by faith alone, but that faith isn't alone. It can't be alone. It's never alone. If it's alone, then you don't have faith. James makes that clear. Faith without works is dead. Faith is never alone. True faith always produces good works as the fruit. That's God's good pleasure for us. If God has converted you, If God has worked repentance in you, if God has worked faith in you, then you will also do good works of thankfulness to him. You will. You must, but you also will. 
if God has converted you, or if you think God has converted you, but you don't do good works, you don't desire to do good works, you don't desire to be godly, you don't desire to change the evil, wicked, sinful patterns of your life, you don't even desire to change, then you're not converted. Not yet. You're not converted. Then the word of God to you this morning is, be converted. Repent. Humble yourself. That's the word of God to you and to me. Now there are people out in the world who think they are doing good works. They give millions and millions of dollars, but they're not believers. Those aren't good works either, because good works proceed from a true faith. The word of God to those is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. In the second place, good works are those works which accord with the law of God. So good works are the same as works of the law. The Bible speaks of works of the law and good works. Those are the same. Now it's true, there were some works of the Old Testament law, which were civil laws and ceremonial laws, and those were not the same as good works. But good works are works of the moral law, works of the Ten Commandments. If you want to know what good works are, what are the good works that God wants me to do, you look to the law. What does God require in his law? Have no other gods before me. God says, look at me. Worship me. Love me with all your heart. Don't have any idols. Or to use some of the language of Colossians chapter 3, good works are these. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's a good work, a good work of worship worshiping God, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and then teaching and admonishing another how through singing, singing, rejoicing in God, praising God, worshiping God through song, good works. We notice good works in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Wives, good works is having a submissive attitude toward your husband, loving your husband, honoring your husband, supporting him and helping him in all of the ways that are fit in the Lord. Husbands, good works is to love your wives and not to be bitter against them. To love your wives, to love them as your own body, to do good to them, to care for them and protect them and nourish them, even as you do your own body and not to be bitter against them. Children, good works means that you obey your parents in all things. Obey them, honor them, love them. Be faithful to them. Respect them. Listen to their good instruction. That's well-pleasing to the Lord. Good works. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, 
lest they be discouraged. Don't abuse your children. Don't treat your children wrongly. Be a a godly and a kind and a faithful father, training them up in the ways of the Lord. Servants, employees, workers, this is good works. You go to work and you obey your masters according to the flesh, not as eye service, not as men pleasers, but with singleness of heart, knowing that you fear God. Even if your master is wicked, you look up beyond him to Christ. And whatsoever you do, you do heartily to the Lord and not to men. Those are good works. We go back earlier in the chapter where he says in verse 12, Put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. God's law requires us to be merciful, to be kind, to be humble, to be meek, to be long-suffering and patient, to be forbearing of one another and to be forgiving of one another. That's what God's law requires. Those are good works. But above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Charity, love. Love binds all those other good works together into one. They all flow out of love. God's law requires love. Good works are works of love. Love for each other and love for our neighbor outside of the church as well. In the third place, Catechism says good works are those done for the glory of God. Not those founded upon the institutions and imaginations of men, but those directed to the glory of God. You see, it's possible to do good works for your own glory. It's possible to be filling your life busy for decades and decades, spending your whole life doing good works, again in quotation marks, all for your own glory. Those aren't good works. They look good, but they aren't good. God isn't pleased with that. You might give millions and millions of dollars to all kinds of charities, but if you do it for your own glory, God looks at that and he is repulsed at that. It's not good. Well, what about us? We sometimes are motivated by our own glory, aren't we? Is it ever possible to do a good work in which we're not at all motivated by anything selfish, but only motivated by the glory of God? We know that even our best works are defiled with sin. Even our best works. That doesn't make them evil works. Because if we do desire the glory of God, if we do desire to give thanks to God, if we do desire to praise God, even though we defile it with selfish motives, it is a good work. Defiled, yes. What a good work. Let us strive then to put aside all selfish motives and to do good to one another for God's glory. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give thee thanks for thy word, thy gospel, and thy admonition. We pray that thou would work it in our hearts to humble us, to give unto us more and more that blessed life of conversion, that in the way of 